it is an opportune time in the next couple of years, if you wish to come to Australia, um, to kind of jump mm -hmm. on that opportunity. And then, you know, you yourself as someone who has migrated here can speak to some of the benefits. <laughs> um, yes. We have universal health care. We are able to, you know, for families, there's great education standards. If you came here and became qualified, um, we have world-leading education levels. So, for example, if you work in the healthcare sector, you are going to be able to practice with those skills anywhere else in the world. Hi, I'm Rhea Favole, CEO and founder of Solvi Migration, providing simple solutions for Australian migration. If you want to work, study, or even just vacay in Australia, then you've come to the right place for expert tips on how to stop the confusion and choose the right pathway for a holiday, student visa, or permanent residency in Australia. Join me on Making Australian Migration Easy. As we say in Australia, no worries, mate. Hi, everybody. This is Pranal Nayak here again. I'm from uh, Gromor Immigration, and I have a special guest today. Uh, Ria Favole. Uh, she is from Solvi Migration. She is a founder and a CEO of uh, Solvi Migration. And uh, before I give her introduction, I would like to request Ria to introduce herself. Hi, Ria. Welcome to our show. Hello. It's absolute delight to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, so as you were saying, I'm Thank Ria Favole, and um, I'm the principal lawyer for Solvi Migration. Uh, it's a relatively new immigration legal practice, but I, I come from, as, as we like to say to our clients, I come from the dark side. I've spent 12 years working in the Australian Immigration <laughs> Department, and now I'm using my powers for good. Right. <laughs> so yes, uh, you're, you're, <laughs> you're saying it's a dark side, but we want to see that as a bright side. So uh, I, have, I have a lot of questions that are from my clients and other people as well about the department, how it works. How it, so could you please, if, uh, in a focus some light on that. How, how is the other side? Uh, you've been a director of the uh, you know, Department of Home Affairs for 12 years, right? And uh, you know, within the, your journey to you know, working in, with the department, how was it, how it works? Could you please let our uh, listeners know how it works? I think uh, one interesting thing is, obviously, the department has gone through a lot of transformations over the years. So I got to experience those working on the inside of the department. Um, the Australian Department of Immigration has had lots of different names. Uh, it's taken responsibility for visas and migration consistently uh, and citizenship. Sometimes there was also broader multicultural affairs uh, type programs mm -hmm. that it was looking at for a period of time. It also looked at Indigenous affairs. Uh, so that's, there's been some yeah. interesting transitions and then combined with the customs. Uh, so that now is kind of how it, it operates, taking into account those two things. So um, in terms of my experience, I worked in policy and programs and I also worked in the legal mm -hmm. team. So training visa decision makers, how you make those decisions. I also worked in a former immigration minister's office in uh, uh, Parliament House uh, in a role as a departmental liaison officer, uh, right through to identity and mm -hmm. biometrics, which is kind of the intelligence side of the department, looking at documentation. Right. Uh, in terms of how it operates, right. an interesting fact that most people don't know is probably only about 5% of people who are employed by the department would ever process a visa or have any idea about how to process a visa. Really? That's true. There is a lot that goes into the administration. Wow. That's funny. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> so the, the people right. that, um, if, right. if people call up the phone line to try and find out about their immigration case, uh, you'll often hear from clients yeah. now, they had no idea what they're talking about. Well, that's because the people who Correct. answer the phones are not visa decision makers. Uh, so they're not going to Correct. be involved in assessing anyone's case. Uh, they get trained mm -hmm. high level on uh, what the different types of visas might be and then encourage people to go and serve themselves. Um, so that, that probably explains, uh, uh, you know, what we will hear from our clients. I tried. I, I, I was on that 13 number <laughs> and I never got a response. That's because you're not speaking to the visa decision maker. Uh, and I, I think that that's, it's helpful for, for you and I with our clients. Um, there, there's a perception that 
we're able to just reach into the department and speak to someone about their case. Uh, but the department deals right. with such a high volume and they move processing and decision making from offices here in Australia, different overseas posts. Uh, so we as the professionals uh, can guide uh, all of our clients and look at their case and their uh, what how to navigate uh, the pathway that they want. But we're not going to be able to pick up the phone in most cases to speak to someone in the department and say, hey, hurry up with this case. What are you doing? Which is, you know, you the go. client expectation because they maybe have heard that's how things used to happen. Not for decades now. Yeah. <laughs> A couple of decades, let's stop. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Absolutely <laughs> right. And see, this is this is the most challenge in our profession mm. that client expect faster processing and you know, on time processing. While the other side, the department uh, is not uh, doing that. Uh, I don't know; it's deliberate or non-deliberate. It depends on the policies. So, uh, in that case, uh, what as a migration agent or a, as a lawyer, what what is my job? What is, what should I do to make my client understand that this is something beyond my control? The the real thing is that they need to understand that we are professionals. Um, I know that both you and I right. would have done years of study to obtain our qualifications. And then we also work with other colleagues and professionals to understand how to navigate the rules uh, and that those rules mm. change on a weekly basis. We will get new sets of rules for different users <laughs> that we're constantly navigating. So I guess it's understanding that because we're trained to do that, we are going to get the fastest outcome. It may not feel like it to the client because they're, they're mm. wanting that quick action. Uh, but if you've got someone who understands the rules and understands the requirements, what documents and the expectations, they're going to make sure that your case has everything presented to the department in the correct format. And that is going to speed up the process. Uh, on top of that, we have subject matter knowledge around things like the ministerial directions. And I've talked about this in my yep. own podcast as well. So Ministerial Direction mm -hmm. 100 at the moment specifies uh, the order of the different types of visa applications and which ones will be given priority. Um, so I think it's important for people to speak to professionals like us to say, here is my situation, here are my immigration goals, can you please advise me currently how long that's likely to take? And we can give an educated guess based on our knowledge of different countries, what their requirements might look like, uh, mm -hmm. their rates of compliance, that's going to impact uh, the, the visa processing, uh, and then being aware of the shifts that happen. And I think because in our professional community, we're able to talk to things like uh, we're aware that currently visitor visas for people outside of Australia are being processed in China. Uh, that's different. Right. Uh, and so people, we can make them aware of why the change and then also to help prepare for clients. Right. So now you've got visa decision makers who are coming from a different cultural context and might have different expectations for how your application is presented. So we can help inform that to make sure that uh, people get much higher rates of success uh, in their cases. Correct. Beautiful. So you just mentioned about your podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, could you please tell us more about your podcast? Where you, um, if somebody wants to listen and what that includes? Uh, yes. So uh, it's actually only a few weeks old. Uh, it's called Making Australian Migration Easy. So the goal of my podcast wow. uh, is to look broadly for people and for people who actually want to take some time researching, okay, I want to go to Australia how do I do this? They may already have skills mm -hmm. to come to Australia. Uh, it's basically giving them the direction, okay, what type of skill assessment do you need? What type of English language test do you need? Or if you want to make a plan because you don't yet have those particular skills, what courses might you do in Australia? Uh, and I also focus on, from my professional experience in government, which particular industries consistently are available for permanent migration pathways. As I think both you and I would know, um, some people may study something and maybe it's not a high enough quality 
or maybe it's something yep. that uh, uh, stops being on one of the skilled lists and then they suddenly mm -hmm. go, okay, well, now I've paid all of this money for this course and don't have a pathway. So the focus of uh, yes. making Australian migration easy um, is to allow people to do the research to start to understand which particular industries consistently have always had good pathways and how to start researching to navigate those. Right. Okay. So, see, I'm, I'm a pretty new migration agent and working in the ind industry for a long time. I was an education agent for 15 years and I've uh, been worked in other industries as well in Australia, but you've been consistently working with the department and all the government departments uh, so far, most of them. Uh, and now you switch to your own business running uh, an, uh, a law firm, which is immigration law firm. So what made you to do that switch? So for me, it was that personal experience. I worked in um, what they would say is the pointy end of the department towards the end of my career. Uh, I worked right. as a senior case manager in immigration detention facilities. And that's where mm -hmm. people's immigration uh, situations for Australian law had not gone well uh, and they're, they're detained. Yeah. That's a very challenging environment. And when you're dealing with yeah. other human beings there in a detention environment who obviously wanted certain outcomes for themselves, their lives, their families, um, as a human being, you, you can't leave that feeling behind. Each person that you deal with, you, you see, you hear them, you understand. Um, so I wanted to, uh, all of the marketing that you'll see around Solvi Migration is very positive and uplifting. It's around Correct. what you can do yep. to migrate successfully. Uh, I would see things yep. that I would find um, you know, personally painful where people had listened to um, the advice of others that were not professionals. So you'll hear a lot mm -hmm. of be people being told mm -hmm. things like just apply for a protection visa and then you get to stay longer. Yep. They don't understand the complexities mm -hmm. and what this does from a compliance to their immigration chances in Australia. Uh, and being in immigration detention, that's where you saw it go particularly wrong. Uh, and then also working in identity and biometrics. Um, I can understand personally, mm -hmm. if you're in a home country where things are not ideal uh, and you're used to uh, being able to purchase documents to meet certain requirements, mm -hmm. uh, but Australia mm -hmm. has very strong identity and biometrics checking to check for counterfeit and fraudulent documents. And there are people using mm -hmm. um very complex technologies to identify these things at the border and in visa applications. And so I thought mm -hmm. to start Solvi Migration, I can use all of that knowledge, all of those skills to start informing people how to do it properly. Because I, you know, as someone who right. comes from mixed heritage, I love that Australia is so multicultural and I want to help people to be able to come here the right way. All right. Okay. Great. Great uh, intention behind the, this, uh, um, I would say, law firm that you're having. You know, your knowledge and your experience is enormous and whatever that your clients are. And I wish them best of luck. And, and I wish that they've made a best choice out of the entire immigration market. You know, where you go, then who the person who has that much of knowledge and experience managing your case, that's the best thing they can do. So please, everyone, uh, if you want to reach out to Ria, uh, I have uh, provided the link in the description so you can reach out to Ria as well. If that any complex cases, any uh, student visas, migration, or what visas you offer, tell me that. So, um, <laughs> What sort of services we, your firm offers? We cover a, a wide range of services because uh, people can come to you from a, a range of, of ways. You would know, having previously been an education agent, um, I do have another a, a number of affiliates who are also education agents. And so someone may come and decide they want to study a course, student visa. That's first thing. We can help with that if you're coming from a country yep. where there's difficulty. Then you might be finishing your course. What, where to next? You might need a graduate visa. Or if you've been doing uh, some kind of uh, training, like uh, construction type roles, you might need to do an apprenticeship. And so you need a training visa to make sure you get the right work experience to get a skills assessment. Uh, we will also help people with skills assessments. Uh, and mm -hmm. then there's the, the skilled migration pathways. So that could be for temporary skilled migration, 
permanent migration, independent, uh, the state and territory nomination, and of course, citizenship. Uh, one area I don't, um, our, our company isn't currently looking to is protection. Um, and that's, I do have a lot of subject matter knowledge, uh, but I know that there's a lot of other colleagues who have a very specific focus on that. And it is, of course, a very important right. area. Um, so I would happily refer people to other colleagues who, who very much focus in that particular area. Great, great. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much for all this information. Okay, so tell us that where you are located, where where are your offices located? Ah, that's the fun part. So we all know that COVID happened. <laughs> and when COVID happened, a lot of people had to stay uh, working inside. So this was another thing I decided with Solvi Migration. I was like, well, people are now used to dealing, like, like we are having our discussion right now online. So um, we right. don't have physical offices um, and that allows my team mm -hmm. also to be able to work from home. You may see it as at events and other things that we will show up um, or I might go out to, mm -hmm. um, I've got some affiliations with some of the uh, uh, the the uh, registered training organizations in my area. I might go and talk to students there. Mm -hmm. um, but most of our consultations are done like this. So through Zoom, on phone. Wow. Uh, and so we, we tend to have a presence uh, for the Gold Coast, Brisbane, uh, Sydney and Melbourne at the moment. Um, but I certainly have clients mm -hmm. offshore and, and other parts of Australia too. Right. Great, excellent, excellent, and that's the in the modern world. I think that should be in for specifically for our, our industry. This is the best part because we can work from home and we can provide all the services from anywhere mm -hmm. in the world. And having office in one place is a different story, while you know serving the worldwide client base is a different story, right? So by having this Zoom consultation or online consultations, we can consult the clients all over the world. And and that's I think that's the best way to do it. Thank you so much for that um, that insight. Okay, so I have some questions regarding Australian immigration uh, from our clients. Or or from online comments or anything. So uh, how Australia see as uh, see migrants or applicants as in um, a source of uh, employment, source of skills, or source of just money-making policy? How does that work? So it is quite broad. So I guess if I explain, first of all, uh, so Australia, obviously, there's the federal government, and that's looking nationwide. Right. Uh, but then we have different states and territories, and each of them have mm -hmm. a government as well. Um, they mm -hmm. they operate together, but um, something that uh, you know people from outside of Australia may not be aware of, uh, we have elections in those different levels of government. So currently, we have a Labor government operating federally. So yeah. they have certain policy objectives with uh, migration and skills. And then states and territories, because they also have separate elections, you, you might have opposing parties um, who are actually governing that particular state or territory. So sometimes it can present a bit of a, yeah. a tension, um, but they do come together Correct. in the Commonwealth Heads of Government meetings to, to agree. Uh, and that's where people will see things like the, the state and territory uh, migration programs. So the way those two work mm -hmm. together, I think that's probably the best program to discuss in this context. The federal government will go mm. and look uh, broadly at labour, look at um, with the Australian Bureau of Statistics, okay, which particular occupations are we seeing shortages of skills? Uh, and then from there, the different states and territories will look at that and say, well, you know, within our state, um, this particular occupation is having more shortages. Um, so the federal government will then sort of say, you know, all right, New South Wales, Queensland, Tasmania, all of the different jurisdictions, you can have an allocation of this many visas. Uh, and then people from there, the different jurisdictions will choose which occupations they're going to invite visas. Uh, people need to have put in their expression of interest for that particular jurisdiction 
and they'll need to meet a points requirement. So this is the general skilled migration program. Uh, there will be English language program, yeah. requirements. There will be skills assessment requirements. You need to get police checks, health checks, all of those other things ready. Have your expression of interest, but then be aware is the state that I wish to go to, do they want my occupation? Uh, and then they will invite mm. in rounds. Uh, as a professional, it can get a little bit challenging because we don't get a lot of advance warning <laughs> when those rounds are going to come and which occupations are going to be on those rounds. So we're always using Correct. our networks uh, to, to keep on top of that on behalf of our clients. Um, but in terms yeah. of, I guess, your your broader question about whether or not um, Australia, as I guess a society, wants migrants, um, you only need to look at the statistics. We are founded on migration, um, absolutely, Correct. and that continues to be the pathway. Um, we do see yep. fluctuations in certain um, nationalities increasing, um, and I, I think that mm -hmm. that's exciting and it might change a little, uh, but under the current government, they certainly have recognised, you know, the world has just been through a pandemic. Uh, now yep. we're seeing interest rates rising, but at the same time, that means then you've got higher salaries and more jobs that need to be filled. So we're seeing great prioritisation of bringing in people with certain skills. So it is an opportune time in the next couple of years, if you wish to come to Australia, um, to kind of jump mm -hmm. on that opportunity. And then, you know, you yourself as someone who has migrated here can speak to some of the benefits. <laughs> um, yes. We have universal health care. We are able to, you know, for families, there's great education standards. If you came here and became qualified, um, we have world-leading education levels. So, for example, if you work in the healthcare sector, you are going to be able to practice with those yeah. skills anywhere else in the world. So, um, certainly a good choice. And I, I definitely like all the vitamin D that we get in our lifestyle by being here. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I used to be a pharmacist, yes. <laughs> uh, so excellent, excellent. And see, there is uh, uh, that gave me a sub-question. You know, when you just say that um, department gives the allocation to the state and state says, okay, this is the occupation. These are the occupations we wanted in our state. And then they start nominating and they start rounds and all that. So uh, behind the scene, who decides those occupations? Uh, who, what are the thought process to decide those occupations? Could you please focus on that? A little bit? So that would be the actual policy officers. So uh, federally, you will have um, people who sit in the Department of Home Affairs looking at uh, you know, working with the Australian Bureau of Statistics and the Department of mm -hmm. Employment and Education to say, okay, with our labour market, where are we seeing those particular shortages? Fantastic. So what kind of numbers do we need broadly for our migration program? And that's where they sort of come up mm -hmm. with the magical number for skilled migration. Uh, and then from mm -hmm. there, there would be discussions with the states and territories who would have their own policy officers who would then also need to examine. They have local governments within the state governments who will then start talking yeah. to them about, well, here's the, the key shortages that we're having in our different areas within this state. Uh, and that's where they would mm -hmm. determine, for example, the subclass 190, which is what a lot of clients want to go straight mm -hmm. to because it's permanent residency. You will see fewer yep. occupations on that list. And that's simply because uh, as a government, you can appreciate if you give someone permanent residency immediately, they're then free to move and relocate wherever they wish to. And the state may not get the yep. benefit of those skills. Um, so that's why they limit the number of occupations that would actually be invited for that. And there's a lower number of those visas allocated. Um, you will see more of the subclass 491, which is the up to five years. And it's generally, mm -hmm. again, caveat, because they've had changes in Victoria, generally, <laughs> that would be for regional areas within the state. Mm -hmm. Except, as we know, Melbourne right. decided two weeks ago that it was also going to be regional. Um, <laughs> the metro as well. Yeah. <laughs> this is why you need us. We we keep up with this. We can't tell our clients enough. <laughs> we 
<laughs> you have to keep up with these changes. Um, <laughs> and so then they would be looking in those different areas. You're going to have a higher chance uh, because there will be more occupations for that subclass 491 because you, uh, it's, a, it's a temporary visa and you need to make a commitment that you are going to be in that state for a number of years uh, and you need to fulfil that time before you're then eligible to apply for permanent residency. So from a government perspective, they think that that's probably the best deal for them because then they get a commitment of actually having the skills in their jurisdiction doing what they need to fill the labour shortages. Right. Okay. Great. Uh, this question, next question, might be a little tricky, but uh, does the political parties impact the immigration policies? Is there anything? Let's say Labour Party, Liberal Party, Greens, and all that. All different parties. Whoever's in the power, do they impact the immigration? We have seen that. You know, people are saying a lot of newspapers saying that. Okay, Liberal Party before, you know, they just stopped the migration for a while. They limit the numbers and all that. Now Labour Party is in the in the drive, and they are driving it. it they are trying to drive it, <laughs> uh, you know, smoothly. So, is it party specific policies as well, or it just uh, country-specific policies? How does that work? So there are definitely country-specific policies that happen for immigration. Um, you can always uh, jump on websites of different political parties and they will have their policies published there for people to view uh, in a lead-up to an election mm -hmm. um, for people who are citizens. It's important that they do that. I don't know that they always do, but yep. um, that's where you can find <laughs> out about those. <laughs> And now I'm going to be a little bit controversial, but also apolitically. If you have a look at the cycles of migration um, and the number mm -hmm. of people who are able to migrate, uh, it doesn't appear to be tied to a specific political party. So from a messaging mm -hmm. standpoint, for example, I, I can recall the time when uh, the Howard government came in and because there was a lot of criticism around the treatment of asylum seekers who are arriving by boat. Um, the public perception mm -hmm. was that it was a very anti-migration um, party. But then in the background, if you look at the statistics of the, um, the migration program, there was actually a steady increase of the number of people who they were allowing to migrate. Uh, so there's there's this kind of juxtaposition of what happens in the messaging out to the world and some of the, the policies that, you know, can impact human beings and how, um, you know, in difficult circumstances. But when you look at a migration program and its numbers, um, it doesn't appear to be tied to the party overall. Um, yes, I, I don't want to as I said, dehumanize the no, people no, who are going through the actual experience um, because it certainly does impact individuals um, at the time. But yes, when you when you have a look at the, the statistics uh, for migration, um, when you when it says that they stopped, you can have a look that things stopped everywhere because there was a world pandemic. So they couldn't have huge numbers of people <laughs> coming and migrating right. at that period right. of time. Um, and then at the mm. as the pandemic has gone into endemic in certain parts of Australia, we had a change of government and now they're having a migration increase. So you can kind of decide whether or not it's the, the new government of the day or whether or not it's a change in global circumstances that is driving that. Right. Okay. Um, so as you just said, during the pandemic, uh, most of the countries, you know, the, the migration level decreases. That uh, brings this question that uh, let's say Canada or US or UK or other European countries where uh, the migration was happening and it was happening in, in a full force. So in the global terms, uh, comparing with other competitors of Australia, let's say US or Canada or UK, that are, they are the ma uh, major competitors in the market uh, to attract the migrants. <laughs> Is, has Australia missed the bus? As a professional, we would say that we keep missing <laughs> a number of buses. <laughs> we, we would like to see improvements. Um, and, yes. you know, I can certainly see 
the department has improved things. Say in the past six months, uh, we're seeing faster decisions being made where the government in, um, I think it was uh, October or November, I think it was October of last year, the Ministerial Direction 100, that gave some more clarity to visa decision makers yep. in the department, which visas they should focus on. Because during COVID, it was all a bit all over the shop. Now they've had some more direction, which for us as professionals means we have more advice that we're able to give clearly to our clients about their migration pathways. Yeah. And I'm seeing faster um, visa decision makers, faster than there has been in, in a few years. So that's a, that's a really good mm -hmm. outcome. Yeah. Yeah, great, 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 excellent. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> that. That was the main uh, question asked. Okay, uh, while I was uh, watching one of your videos, and and you you mentioned in one of your short video on YouTube that uh, the cycle of migration, where you give an example of hairdressers, where they're saying that, uh, you say that uh, that happens. A student come here, they decide to study something, and then meanwhile they finish their study, then the courses out of the skill list mm -hmm. so they miss out on those opportunities for you know going for the skill migration and all that so when an applicant applying for a visa from overseas or within australia let's say from overseas that's a basic scenario mm -hmm. when someone is applying for the visa what are the main aspects they have to keep in their mind whether it's a student whether it's a migrant whether it's a working holiday anything if they're applying for any sorts of visa, what should they think before applying for a visa, Australian visa? Yes, I would say for, for us giving professional advice, the most important thing is to know what is your immigration goal? If your goal is 100%, right. I want to migrate to Australia on a permanent basis, make Australia my home, then you need to be really clear on the pathways that are available to you. Um, and this is why in my mm -hmm. podcast, Making Australian Migration Easy, I have broken it down into sort of broad sectors uh, of um, agriculture, childcare and education, construction, healthcare work, uh, hospitality and information communication technology. Those particular industries, and there's many different occupations that fall under those broad categories, have consistently had permanent migration pathways. So that's why I've sort of come up with those six um, with my knowledge of what I've seen sort of over, uh, you know, prior to being in the immigration department, I actually had a little over 20 years giving away my age in um, Australian government uh, policy experience. <laughs> but consistently, yeah. um, those particular areas have had available pathways. So if you are minded to just say, right, I def definitely want to come to Australia and uh, study something, if that's your goal, then I would be looking at which particular sectors you're going to so that you know you have a clear migration pathway um, and always seek professional advice from someone who has that understanding of the, the government policy and changes and can give you really informed uh, advice. Uh, I'll see uh, there were a number of people when I was in the student visa compliance who would fall into traps because they sort of went for what was the cheapest and quickest deal, thinking, I just need to get my visa extended. It's like, well, that's great, but now you've paid big international fees and that particular course that you did doesn't lead to anything skilled. So really understand what uh, your your skills mean in terms of Australian migration and where they're going to be needed um, before you start going down your, your pathway of studying in Australia. Right. So you're saying that professional advice from an experienced person or whoever is professional in the field is kind of necessary uh, before making a decision, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you and I would have yeah. heard many times from clients, but I heard that and I had a friend that and I had a family member that and I was reading on social media <laughs> and I saw and this blog and it's like, oh, but that's not <laughs> advice. They're not professionals. They don't know how to navigate the Australian migration laws. So um, it, it really helps Correct. to understand from someone who's seen even, you know, even as professionals, we'll have clients come to us for, um, say, assistance uh, going to a tribunal because they've had their visa refused because they didn't understand the rules. And that's 
you know, some of our knowledge actually comes from other people's mistakes. We we can advise you because we've seen yeah. where the mistakes are. So we've got a good understanding to to let people know, no, no, you don't want to go that way, go this way. And here's the reasons why. Um, so that, yeah, professional advice uh, from either a, a registered Australian migration agent or someone who is an Australian lawyer, um, absolutely essential. Uh, otherwise, you're taking big risks with your migration pathway. Correct. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, so you've been in a legal profession for that that long years. You just gave 20 years to Australian policymaking and all that. Uh, so being a policymaker, being a lawyer, how was your own journey uh, in Australia? You've been Australian. You, you're an Australian-born child. Mm. You, uh, are you a migrant by any chance? Your parents migrated to Australia or something? Or your parents are based in Australia as well? So um, my father was actually Nigerian. He has since passed. Um, but a different migrant story. My parents met in Moscow. So my mother is Australian. My father was wow. Nigerian. And they met in Moscow. So right. This is a very international right. product here now in Australia. <laughs> great. Great, but great, having, great. I think, so, the, the mixed cultural background, and, and particularly because I'm from both a, a Western and Eastern type of, of culture, um, it, it helps me to yeah. understand clients and what their expectations might be from um, their own lived experiences, and then being able to frame mm -hmm. it in such a way that they can understand how then they can navigate coming to Australia because, um, you know, Australia is mm. all the better for having more migrants. Uh, I, I went to uh, last it. year, I don't know if you had the pleasure of going to Hobart to a migration conference um, and saw the immigration mm -hmm. minister there. And uh, there was also talks about the benefits of migration there. And they looked at a cycle of food. Just let's just look at food. Australia, <laughs> you can eat around the world <laughs> in one suburb, and that yeah. that that is because yeah. we've had such fantastic migration here, um, okay. and I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> <laughs> now that is, that is the beauty of Australia. Like you know, you live anywhere, Sydney, Melbourne, anywhere, any major cities, or even in in a country uh, countryside as well. <laughs> you feel that uh, multicultural vibrancy everywhere, mm. and that's the beauty of these countries. Of course, yes, it is a great country. So overall, um, as a as a policymaker, or as a lawyer, or as a founder of a migration firm, what you see the future of Australian migration? How how it uh, will be um, benefiting the country? Um, look, Australia, one, one local example that I like to look at right now, so we've got the 2032 Brisbane Olympics that are going to happen. Uh, and internally yes. within Australia, we're seeing migration from the southern states uh, up to Queensland, which is where, where I live. And that's only going to continue to grow. Um, we don't have enough housing and the infrastructure also needs to continue to be expanded and improved upon. All of those things, we don't have the skills here. We, we need more people. We need more people to work in construction. And when you have those, the infrastructure that grows, you will need more healthcare because there is a higher population that requires the healthcare and the support in those industries. And then those people all have children. And so then education also needs to grow in line with that. Um, and tourism and hospitality uh, is, is a massive part of that as well. Um, so there are more tourism and hospitality roles that continue to grow. Um, if we have a look at the, the population only 20 years ago versus uh, today, uh, we're having some birth rates, but migration is also making a huge contribution to that. Um, we are a huge landmass, but there is still more room, um, but we need people to come here to help build it. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Absolutely. So what, what could be the future projection for, uh, for the population, I would say, let's say next 20 years or 30 years? What is, uh, do you have any insight that Australia, what Australia, Australia is aiming for? Right now we are two and a half, uh, 25, 25 million, right? million. So what, 
Yeah. I, so what will be the future projection in the next 20, 30 years? Uh, Is there any number? There there yeah. are some numbers, and sorry, I don't have those to hand, um, but in, if we look at the economy of Australia, which is quite strong, there are predictions that within about mm-hmm. 10 years, we may be the strongest economy. So that's quite insightful. Wow. Um, and as mm-hmm. uh, as as said the statistician who was giving that talk uh, at the migration conference, you need to have migration to continue to have the economy growing and on track. Uh, international education, yeah. it's of a high standard, but we you know, need to continue welcoming more people through those programs. Um, in order to keep up with that, I, I think that we'll continue to see um, more red tape being removed uh, because we can't keep up with the volume with the way that the processes are happening. Yeah. Uh, I think people do like yeah. the fact that there is uh, good governance and that you know that um, people's identities and their qualifications and so on are being properly uh, verified, but I think it needs to be done in a in a speedier way, which means that Australia will continue to improve its linkages across different levels of government and also um, in our communications and sharing uh, with other governments across the world. Great. Excellent. Absolutely. You're right. Um, uh, this question, you can choose not to answer that, <laughs> but this is a question from many, many clients, you know. So, Question is, uh, there are a lot of delays happening in the in the department. Uh, so, uh, what happens? Like, is those applications are stored and not even looked at? Is that uh, instructions given to the case officers, or there are less case officers who can't cope with the workload? What, what is the actual behind the scene uh, thing that is happening? So, because of the delay, say three years mm-hmm. delay, four years delay. For, um, partner visas, general skill migration, 491-189, not 189, but at least 489-887. Those applications are sitting there for long Mm. years. So is that not, uh, it's been told to the case officer not to even look at them, or there is a lot of other applicants, applications are coming in, and that is is why the case officers are busy and they can't even look at them. Mm. So I think a lot of that was... um... Well, COVID had happened. Uh, the department had to decide uh, which areas does it focus on. Uh, so we're we're aware uh, that uh, the department has recruited. I think it's now heading towards. They were, they were trying to get to around six hundred additional visa decision makers, which sounds magical, but mm-hmm. you can't just drop in people who you know have a, a little matrix chip of all of the uh, how to assess a visa application and and deliver yeah, a decision. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this was where some of the work that I did came in. There needs to be solicitors first of all who are trained on administrative law, visa decision making, and then. And they need to be able to, um, with the recruitment process, actually give decision-making training. Uh, visa decision-makers can come from a range of backgrounds um, themselves, educationally, mm-hmm. culturally, um, but they will all be part of the Department of Home Affairs, uh, which means they have to be Australian citizens if they're going to be working here in mm-hmm. Australia. Um, and they will need to be supervised and trained. The department then needs to decide with the resources that they've got where they're going to allocate the prioritisation. Ministerial Direction 100 gave clarity with the Minister of the Day. This is where I want you to focus on um, bolstering the uh, decision-making processing timeframes. With those other sort of legacy cases, I think those visa subclasses are no longer available for people to apply for. So when the department or the government has made a decision to wrap up a certain visa subclass, that is an indication that there is a different policy thinking happening. Um, And so that was why they were not prioritised so much. But then obviously that does create... uh, Understandably, people then mistrust the department and its capacity. Even if they're applying for a different visa, they, they, they're they not seeing that this is a different type of visa. That relationship and the trust gets broken a little. Um, so after COVID, yeah. the change of government, they've come in and they've seen that. Um, there are now dedicated officers to actually 
getting decisions from that backlog of cases out now. Um, anecdotally, I'm hearing from people that decisions are now coming out from those legacy caseloads. The difficulty is that yeah. because we have skilled shortages that are here right now, present right now for certain occupations, they also have to have visa decision makers who will quickly get through those. So they're working on the back to the front and that means that there's people going, this isn't fair. I was lined up first of all. So, <laughs> yes, I understand. But yeah. the government looks at it and says, but these are the skills that we need right now. Um, so I think they're, they're juggling a, a difficult line um, with the resources and trying to train new people um, into that process at the same time. Excellent. Excellent. So, yes, uh, I was about to ask you this question, like how if someone because I've got some citizen Australian citizen friends and they, they just asked me, like, how to become a visa officer, the case officer. And I haven't had the answer. So, <laughs> but you've already answered the question. Thank you for that. <laughs> so I can advise them if they want to be. You know? So so it, a legal background is the first qualification they have to have or it's it's not mandatory. How, how does it work? No. Um, interestingly, there there were not a lot of people who were legally trained who were visa decision makers. Um, it wasn't part of the recruitment strategy. Um, the people who train the visa decision makers in a large part, so on the legal frameworks and the administrative law, someone like myself and my colleagues, um, we have to be solicitors. Um, so we're, we're lawyers, but a lot of the other trainers and so on may come from the policy areas or be people who have mm -hmm. been trained themselves in the past. And there's different modules that people need to do of the training. Um, so one side is is the legal side and the advice and the decision, um, but then there's a lot of systems and processes and background checks uh, that I guess we need to try and educate our clients and to give them appreciation. Some countries, there may be further security checking. Um, there can be further checks going on in the background for documents, uh, certainly the police checking, or if there have been um, certain activities such as wars and other things, even if someone has given service, um, they will need to do further background checking into every individual who is in that application. And sometimes if they've got family members who have been involved in certain things, that is happening in, in the background and it can be at the overseas posts. Um, it's not something that the visa decision makers are going to be um, able to communicate uh, to us though because uh, those particular things are, um, I guess, administrative decision-making and some of them have national security connotations. So there just needs to be a bit of an appreciation that those things are happening uh, and the visa decision-makers will often have to refer um, parts of the decision off to different areas for clearance for things like character and health and so on. Right. So um, this is commonly seen that sometime uh, the case officers makes a decision and uh, the ap applicant applies to the uh, further appeals, mm -hmm. uh, let's say AAT or the federal court or something. And if the, they found, the AAT found, find out or the federal court find out the decision has made wrongly, mm -hmm. it was an error from the decision maker's side, mm -hmm. is there any, any impact on, the, on an individual's career as a decision maker? Um, so I also worked in an area which was, uh, it, this was a focus on protection visas, but it was quality assurance. So with the quality mm -hmm. assurance role, what I would do is take a random sample of decisions and evaluate them. And from that, um, right. I wouldn't know the name of the officer, but we would have numbers allocated to the officer. Correct. So if Position, there was yes, consistent yes. administrative issues that were picked up against that person's number, it would be reported back for recommended training. So that means mm -hmm. the person then it's like, well, you've, you know, there, there's been some issues with some of your decisions. You now need to go and do some further training in these particular areas. Uh, and certainly if there was uh, flagrant breaches or anything like that, um, then there could be serious performance management or someone could be moved on if there, if it was, um, you know, sort of deceitful behaviour. Um, fortunately, I guess within the department context, the only time where we saw that was in overseas posts and it was contracted people 
who may be within their own um, uh, cultural practices. It may have been all right to just go and pay someone for this or pay someone for that, and they may have tried that at post. It then comes up later in the person's visa once they're in Australia, and that causes problems for them. Um, And so certainly the department is constantly reviewing those kinds of outcomes as well. Wow. Wow. Pretty great insight. Yeah. Thank you so much for everything, you know. Um, see, <laughs> uh, this is some of those questions. Even I didn't knew the answers People, when people ask me and, and I ask on uh, their behalf. So, uh, yes, pretty great answers. And, and thank you for joining us uh, in today's uh, episode. And it's insightful information you have given us from your end, for your exp- from your experience, 20 years with working in a legal industry. And it is amazing to have a knowledge like that. And uh, I'm, my, ans- my questions will never end uh, if I keep going on. <laughs> but the time does not uh, permit us. And uh, yeah, we have to consolidate. But uh, do, you, do you want to tell our audience or your audience, whoever's watching this video, uh, before we, we uh, uh, consolidate our, our session? Yeah, absolutely. I guess um, there's two things. The first thing, Australia wants and needs you. Please find a way to come here. And the second thing would be get the right advice from a qualified registered Australian migration agent or a qualified Australian immigration lawyer to make sure you do it the right way. As always, me and my team are happy to provide advice. We would love to give a bit more of assistance Uh, to plan your migration pathway for coming to Australia with an initial consultation and giving you a $50 discount off that first consultation. And all you need to do is pop onto our website, that's www.solvimigration.com.au and click on book a consultation And there is an area where you can enter a redeem code. And in that redeem code, you enter 50OFF, that's 50 off, to receive $50 off your paid consultation. Paid consultation is an amazing thing. You've heard about how complicated it can be planning your migration pathway. It's only 30 minutes of your time. But what you will do is provide all of the information about your immigration goals, what your skills and qualifications are, and the team will be able to give you a comprehensive assessment, meet with you, discuss what those options look like, and then give you back in written form, you'll have written advice as to what the pathway is for your specific case and what to do, as well as some quotes for if you want more professional assistance in order to get your registrations through, get your skills assessment through, and to get that visa application with the best chance of success. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you in our next episode. Please do drop in the comments if there's any specific things that you would like to hear about in future episodes, and we'll cover it off for you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Making Australian Migration Easy with me, your host, Rhea Favole. If you're ready to get started on your pathway to Australia, you can book a consultation on our website, solvimigration.com.au. That's solvimigration.com.au. If you've enjoyed the show and have learned a thing or two, please share, rate and review our podcast. Your feedback means the world to us as we try and let more people know the best way to study and work in Australia in a way that sets them up for long-term success. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you later.